0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com
1: upgrade. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning
2: the 18th of January Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM
3: We're living in an age of emergencies Climate, the war in Ukraine, housing, the cost of living, child poverty There are also threats to the economy and employment And to peace and partnership on our island We're facing deep political and social crises And they affect every community in our country So we need to treat each of them as a national emergency and deploy the full resources of the state, the full machinery of government, to make an immediate and real difference. And that's what we're committed to do as a government. When the life of our nation was in peril, we joined together to protect each other. Today, the hopes and dreams of our nation depend on us fixing the problems we face. To do so, we need to be all out to be radical or redundant.
2: Leo Bradger speaking on the 17th of December when, for the second time, he was appointed Taoiseach. The Taoiseach's job in tackling those emergencies will get underway today as the Doll resumes its business. Let's begin with Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with the Mead Chronicle and a very good morning to you, Gavin. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It's going to be a very busy term ahead but it seems Leo Radker didn't anticipate in December what the biggest emergency facing government would be today a political emergency and as TDs return to Leinster House all eyes now it seems will be on Pascal Donoghue is the Minister in trouble do you think?
3: Uh, He is in a little bit of trouble and I suspect actually given the way that today is likely to turn out he could potentially be in a little bit uh, more trouble. Good morning again to you and your listeners. Uh, Pascal Donoghue is going to be called into the door this afternoon to make a statement on the record on the floor of the House uh, about this whole affair about the funding of the 2016 general election campaign and some previously undisclosed expenses or donations that were all part of that. Now, that in itself is never a great thing to have to do because there is a scandal or at least the length of your arm of different controversies which are resulted in ministers being called in on the floor of the door. And generally speaking, these things tend to raise more questions than they actually answer. But interestingly, the word this morning, as has been given to the opposition parties, is that although Pascal Donahue will be making a statement in the Dáil, he is not going to be available or there will not be time allotted for questions and answers from opposition parties afterwards. Now, the opposition parties wanted him in precisely because they wanted to put questions to him to um, to hone in on what they see as some contradictions or some inconsistencies or generally some issues that need to be straightened out about Pascal Donahue's account of events. And the fact that he is not being made available to do that not alone is likely to lead to a fight on the floor of the door later mm. on when it comes to signing off on the day schedule, but is also then almost certainly going to lead to this perception that maybe there are still more questions to be answered and that Pascal Donoghue, despite you know the the appearance of being so. Uh, willingly comprehensive with the statement that he gave on Sunday and again the statement that he's likely to give today uh, that he's not really prepared to entertain uh, anyone trying to dot the i's and cross the t's about the whole thing.
2: All right, it sounds like there's going to be blue murder. Uh, You're writing extensively about this, it has to be said in the Mead Chronicle today. Uh, And you say if Leo Vratker had any moral authority, Damien English and Pascal Donoghue might both be gone. But you also say that Leo Radker's own moral authority uh, has been compromised by by the leaking of uh, that contract to the NAGP. Uh, but <laughs> if uh, that wasn't the case, it might be a, a different story. Uh, do you think that uh, now this morning on reflection, given that it's reported that the parliamentary party members of Fine Gael are said to have given Damien English a round of applause at a meeting of the party last night?
3: Uh, there's a curious aspect to how a lot of this has played out and I I don't say this to be disrespectful of anyone who's been at the centre of any controversies but it's almost like the debate that's been in the last few years about uh, whether you can separate the artist from the art and if uh, a musical artist or an actor or something um, has done something in their personal lives which is reprehensible and which leads them to effectively being cancelled and kind of written out of modern history is it still okay to appreciate the work that they've done and there's a kind of a parallel to that Going on, I think within Finnegray at the moment. Where I mean, everyone everyone loves Pascal Donahue because he's seen as very prudent, because he's unflappable, because he chooses words very carefully, because he is a high achiever, because generally speaking, he portrays portrays an air of, of nobility and devotion to public service. And by and large, his record does kind of stand over that. And likewise, Damien English has been a Minister of State now for for years upon years upon years, close to ten years. Of an unbroken service as a Minister of State before the events of the last week. Um, Damien English is, is a longstanding uh, member of Dallaire. And even opposition parties, you know, Sinn Féin and Fine Gael wouldn't have very much in common. But if you ever asked Sinn Féin members, you know, who in Fine Gael could you see yourself doing business with if the numbers required you to work together after a general election? the name of Damien English often came up as, as someone who people thought was flexible and amenable and who, who had his opinions but was always prepared to compromise and was, was pragmatic in that sense. And, and that, of course, then leads to, you know, the, the sort of uh, the applause and the acclaim that they were given from their, their own colleagues within Fine last night. But But I do think the point remains that in both instances, in both the instance of Pascal Donahue and the instance of Damien English, particularly in Damien's instance where if he was the minister at the Department of Housing, who was supposed to be overseeing the work of vulture funds, making sure that there was consumer protection, and was entertaining questions in the Dole and the Shannon about the transfer of funds from uh, from mortgages from permanent TSB to a vulture fund, and never actually disclosed his own material interest in that, and that his was one of the ones proposing to be moved, that is a pretty, on the face of it, that, that would seem to be a fairly egregious breach of the ethics laws because it is written in black and white in the law of the land that whenever a member of the Iraqis is contributing to a debate and they have a personal germane interest in something that's being discussed, you have to orally say it out loud. That you have to make mm. it clear to the chamber when you're speaking that it's something that you have skin in the game for. And, and Damien English didn't do that. And I think that's what goes beyond his status as a minister. Obviously, he's resigned as a minister last week, and, and that is what it is. And, and, and many of his party colleagues say... That is the price that he should pay and no more.
2: So, I
3: think when it comes to uh, not alone falling short of uh, the ethics requirements in disclosing that, but also separately, uh, the matter of of whether he actively and willfully misled his local authority so as to gain planning permission. If a member of uh, the OROCTUS, a a public representative for me, is misleading the local authority, I do think there is a genuine reason to question whether that person can be a member representing that county anymore and I think that still remains
2: an open question. OK, well if he didn't intentionally, knowingly mislead the council then he has a serious problem um, serious memory problem because he forgot uh, that he, he was uh, uh, the owner of a house that he, he yeah, didn't would, declare in his application. The house
3: that he was living in at the time of the yeah.
2: application. So so yeah. very serious questions for Damien English and Pascal Donoghue. Uh, is it plausible to think that there won't be answers? Damien English has gone to ground since resigning as minister apart from that Twitter video. Uh, will uh, there be any questions asked of him or uh, do you think that we'll hear statements or questions, uh, the, the the pertinent questions that are being put to the two men answered directly?
3: I suspect that, Damien, in English case, you, you may not hear uh, very much because uh, it is entirely possible and I don't know this for certain but it's entirely possible that given Damien English's failure to disclose um, the, the issue about his tracker mortgages being transferred when he was speaking to Dahl on that topic, there's a reasonable chance of there being a complaint to CIPO a- along the lines of. That which was made about Robert Troy a few months ago, where he wasn't disclosing his interest in some of the issues that he was raising as well. So I suspect, for as long as there's a CIPO complaint or if there's the prospect of a CIPO complaint, Damian English has has some cover. Uh, that might well be the reason why Pascal Donna who is not amenable to taking questions in the Dole today, he may argue, well, there's a complaint before Sipo, mm. and I don't want to use Dole or parliamentary privilege to say something that then might influence Sipo uh, in, in its handling of that complaint. Which, on the face of it, would be very noble, but it would then ask you why he was prepared to take questions from journalists last Sunday afternoon at a hasty press conference at Leicester House, uh, but might not be prepared to do it inside on the floor with parliamentary privilege uh, three days later. And I do mm-hmm. think that one interesting thing about the last couple of days of Pascal Donoghue is that although, um, you know, there's obviously there's still a certain amount of antipathy between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, that Fianna Fáil members in the last two days have been fairly vocal in standing behind him and saying that his explanation has been comprehensive enough. But they've also been saying if anything more were to come out, then there's a problem. And I suspect what would happen today if he did take all questions was that people would would question his account of whether this was a personal donation from the businessman and whether it was a donation to the party. Pascal who says it was, and that works out for him because a donation of €1,100 Euro in services is permissible if it comes from a person to the party. But if it comes from the person to the politician then it's above the disclosure or it's above the donation limits. And if it was a corporate donation, if Sippo was to see it as a corporate donation, if if it's thought that these were uh, people working on company time putting up his posters, that's a corporate donation and, and the limit on corporate donors is 200 euro. Mm. And this is a service which he says is worth 1,100 and which many others think is actually worth uh, several times more than that. So, 10,000 uh, like
2: t- t- 10, is a figure I've seen. Yeah, that's
3: that's what the, the complaining yeah. to sipo said. Mm. And even though that, that may be a stretch because I think that's trying to allow for the cost of fuel and everything else mm. as well. Mm. Uh, even if you look at other candidates who contested the same seat in the same general election, Fianna Fáil's Mary Fitzpatrick um, disclosed election spending of just shy of €5,000 in mm. mounting and then removing her election posters. So even if this team only put up a fraction of uh, the posters of Pascal who did actually mount, there'd be good reason to think that actually the commercial value of the services was far more than €1,100, and that's what you're supposed to disclose. And this, this could all end up with Pascal who the minister responsible for the ethics regime, embarrassingly enough, having to write a cheque to refund some donations because they're in breach of the limit.
2: All right. Well, before the doll resumes, uh, the Cabinet will meet. And uh, we've been hearing that ministers are expected to sign off on the transport strategy for the Greater Dublin area. This is a 20-year strategy uh, and one that in 2021... Uh, included an extension of the railway line to Navan. Has anything changed at all? Because that extension was not to happen until the second half of this strategy. In other words, not until after 2030. We knew that back in November of 2021 from the draft strategy. We also knew that there was no funding in place and that it was only aspirational. Uh, but Shane Shame Castles uh, seems to be out spinning old news this morning or is that unfair?
3: Um, I don't, oh, I, first of all, I have to admit I haven't heard Shane Castle I haven't seen exactly what way he's presenting this but but as you understand this, no, nothing has changed Now, if you ask the NTA they say that the navan Project isn't being long-fingered it will simply be until after 2030 because that's how long it would take to construct the whole thing that when you put in for the, the version of planning permission, it's called a railway order. You put that in and it will take a couple of months, or perhaps up to a year to get the planning permission. Then when you've got the planning permission, you can put things out to tender and you can look for bids to see exactly how much it's going to cost. And um, Only then can you actually set the money aside because you can't set aside a budget until you know exactly what the project is going to cost. And um, So all of that will take a couple of years and then it could be six or seven years overall in construction, bringing it from where it currently is and then through all the other feeder stops, Kilmesson being one of the proposed stops along the way before it finally gets to Navin. So they would tell you that it's basically the guts of about 10 years' work to get it all done. Now, the only thing that's changed is that, as you say, the last time all of this was discussed in November 2021, and there was a bit of hand-wringing over why it was going to take so long. The NTA at the time said they were going to apply for a railway order, diversion of plan information, that within a matter of months, and they certainly, they certainly seemed to indicate that they were going to be putting out for that railway order, sometime in 2022. We're now obviously finished 2022, we're into 23 and there's no sign of it yet. So the one thing that we all should be looking out for when we do see that strategy later on is whether there is now a revised timetable for looking for that railway order because that really is the first in the chain of dominoes and only when that's done can everything else be done. So before you can start building Mm -hmm. it and before you can even start tendering it, you need to get the planning commission and we thought we would have applied for it by now so let's see today if there's a timetable on that.
2: We'll be watching that very closely of course when the doll resumes uh, there's no doubt that housing is going to top the agenda. Finding accommodation for refugees and indeed uh, some of uh, the right wing anti-immigrant responses uh, is going to be a, a big part of the discourse over the next uh, few weeks uh, but so will health uh, of course. The health committee yeah. met yesterday uh, and And indeed, uh, uh, the idea of them introducing a three-year plan to deal with the overcrowding this year was brought up. We can hear just a little bit of what was said. Uh, Here's Sinn Féin's David Cullenan talking about that three-year plan.
3: Why was that plan that you're talking about here in your opening statements that you will put in place, that unscheduled care improvement plan, which I welcome will be multi-annual, why was that not put in place in 2017 or 18 when we had all of the same warnings all of those reports I'm talking about which pointed to all of those problems in emergency departments and here we are 4 years later only now talking about a plan
0: in terms of why we don't why we didn't have a 3 year plan uh, 3 or 4 years ago I can't speak for the history of that um, but going forward It's, in our view, the correct thing to do, and I think you'll be giving knowledge
2: that. And that's the interim CEO of the HSE, Stephen Mulbany, responding uh, to David Cullinan in Leinster House yesterday. But that sets the scene, doesn't it, Gavin, for what's going to happen today? There's going to be a big private members motion on overcrowding in hospitals.
3: Yeah, which is likely to be delayed somewhat because there is that extra statement by Pascal who, and then there's the prospect of the government being strong-armed into some Q&A afterwards, so it could end up being the dead of night. Um, but I thought that it was a very interesting comment yesterday, as you just heard that, that clip there from Stephen Mulvaney, the interim CEO of the HSE. You know, if you do bear in mind that the terms and conditions and the package that that Paul Reed was on, granted, Paul Reid, his predecessor, had an awful lot on his plate because the pandemic suddenly emerged effectively from nowhere uh, in the middle of his tenure. So all of his previous plans went straight out the window. Uh, but what does it tell you that the person who is replacing someone on an overall salary of €430,000 doesn't know why there wasn't some sort of multiannual plan to beef up the staffing in the sector so that it has the capacity um, that it actually needs. It certainly does raise an awful lot of questions. Uh, one thing which was also fascinating about that, that exchange yesterday was that um, Stephen Mulvaney, again, the, the interim CEO of the HSE, he's going to be replaced by Bernard Gloucester a little bit later in the spring, um, he denies that the winter plan was an unmitigated disaster uh, despite there being close to 1,000 people on trolleys uh, on the 3rd of January. And the reason why he says it wasn't a disaster is because even all of their uh, worst-case planning was surpassed by the number of people who became ill um, over the last uh, three or four weeks, that they had a certain modelling for how many people were going to get the flu, for how many people might get RIC, for how many people might get COVID and need hospitalisation from it, and and all of those were blown out of the water. And isn't it mad to think that so many decisions were made about how we could and couldn't live our lives for the last couple of years on the basis of uh, epidemiological modelling almost none of which truly came to pass when it came to it because the circumstances always differed along the line and yet suddenly now, when we're all at liberty that actually the models are, are totally blown out of the water. So yeah, as you say, the, David Cullenan raising this whole thing of why wasn't there a multi-annual plan. I suspect if the HSE isn't able to explain why there wasn't one then... Uh, Stephen Donnelly or whoever else is taking that motion this evening for the government will also find it very difficult to explain why there wasn't one before now and this government is now at an age where it's very difficult to say, oh we are going to come in and do things different because we are as you know, more than halfway through the term and the general election
2: looms ever closer. OK, well, the conversation will continue in the Doll Chamber today when uh, business resumes in Leinster House. Gavin, thanks for joining us in advance of uh, the new political term. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Berger Media News, a columnist with the Meath Chronicle. Michael,
4: Michael Reed on LMFM.
2: Now, on the subject of overcrowded hospitals, hospitals really are under pressure as are the staff and while staff were working inside Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda on Friday night. As you've been hearing, thieves were outside, breaking into cars in the car park.
5: The first vehicle was a, zero, sorry, a 10D Blue Kiev Picanto, and the second vehicle was a, another 10D Reg, Red Hyundai A20. The owners of the vehicle were working nights in the hospital and discovered that the vehicles had their passenger windows smashed and property taken from them.
2: Right, now that's uh, Garda Kyle Waters on the Garda Crime Desk. Yes, they appealing for information into those break-ins. Uh, I'm sure Jordan Dennis, who's on the line, would hope that the Garda are successful uh, in those investigations. Good morning to you, Jordan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Your wife, Louise, is a nurse in the hospital, and her car was one of the cars that were broken into.
6: Good morning, Michael. Yeah, that's correct. So my wife, Louise, is a nurse at Lady Lourdes Hospital in Drodda. And uh, she was working the night shift on the night, so she would have been in the Friday evening coming home there on the Saturday morning. And she, when she returned to the HSE car park, uh, where the, the, the nurses and the hospital staff have their vehicles parked, she discovered that her um, her car door was, was attempted to be pried open, and then her back window was smashed. And someone had gotten into the car, tried to hotwire it, but and um, couldn't successfully take, seal the car, so they just, they just left it as it was, but there was glass everywhere, and the whole thing was a big mess.
2: Mm. It takes a while to get all of that fixed up. Your whole weekend was gone, I'm sure.
6: If, yeah, as you can imagine, mm. it's the last thing you need. Uh, you know, it takes time and it takes money to, mm. to fix it all up.
2: Yeah, and after a hard, long shift in the hospital, I'm sure Louise was sick to the stomach at the sight of, of uh, the car when she uh, was making her way home.
6: Oh, Absolutely, I mean, it's the last thing you need coming off a twelve-hour a shift. Um, you know, and as Louise had said, to, as Louise had said to myself, like it's one thing what happened with the, the cars in the area breaking into the cars, but this person tried, whoever did this, tried to pry open the doors. So they clearly had a weapon with them, and it was my wife's concern that in the future, you know, what if herself or one of the one of the nurses, hospital staff, were to be attacked, physically attacked by right. someone.
2: Mm. Uh, it's not the, the the that break in that happened on Friday night that you're most concerned about. It's the potential for other attacks, uh, and you want security to be put in place in the car park.
6: That's that's right. Well, it is a HSC owned car park, um, and as I says, like you know, Louise says, moving forward now in the future, herself and her colleagues are just really concerned about their physical safety, and uh, you know, it should be there should be security. There, there is security at the hospital, so there should be security there, at least someone there manning the, the car park at night. Mm. Uh,
2: am I right in thinking that the nurses are, are taking their own action and that they're uh, coming together, walking over to the car park in groups rather than on their own?
6: Yeah, well, my wife has said that herself and a couple of our colleagues, they, they've agreed to, to wait for each other now after work so that they can leave the hospital and get to the car park safely in numbers. Mm.
2: Well, it's a a dark spot. Uh, It's personal safety that uh, Louise and others are worried about.
6: That's right, personal safety. I mean, you know, if if people have the time to be breaking into two or three cars there, what's to stop Mm. somebody with a physical or, or sexual assault?
2: Okay. Well, I I know everybody is very appreciative of uh, the work that Louise and her colleagues do in the hospital and uh, across all of the hospitals in the country and I know that uh, an awful lot of people were uh, appalled uh, at the idea of nurses' cars being broken into like that and hopefully the Garda's investigations will be successful as we said uh, at the start Jordan thank you indeed for joining us this morning
6: Thanks very much Michael
2: That's uh, Jordan Dennis who's married to to Louise uh, who is a nurse in Our Lady of Nurse Hospital in Drogheda
4: Michael, Michael
2: Reed on, on LMFM. Yeah, thanks uh, to Deirdre who wants uh, security in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital's car park uh, to protect uh, the property of uh, the nurses and uh, the nurses uh, themselves. Sean in Dublin 9 whatsapping us uh, this morning saying Damien English gets a standing ovation from his Fine Gael cronies. What message does that give to those who obey the rules? Well I take it those who obey the rules Sean can deduce from that standing ovation that Damien English is very popular in Fine Gael and he has the backing of all of the parliamentary party members. and Mead says, good morning, Michael. This is a great country for talking about things. All talk, very little action. Those in government should always remember we... The people pay their wages. Not high performers. Talk is cheap. Health issues, housing issues are amongst the most important. Stop talking and do that what you're paid to do, says Claire in Meath. A Navin listener saying, with the drop in inflation now, why is the cost of petrol and diesel sneaking up when it should be reducing? Is it just greed, which almost all retailers are guilty of and blame the war in Ukraine for everything? Thanks, Navin listener. Somebody saying to me yesterday, indeed, uh, that the international price of gas is now a fifth of what it was at the peak. So why do prices continue to be as expensive as they are? We'll come back to some more comments a little bit later on the programme, but let's return to that Health Committee meeting yesterday. As you heard earlier, Stephen Mulvaney the CEO of the HSE, the interim CEO was in front of uh, the committee uh, and he was talking about this perfect storm of flu or RSV and COVID, which has put this huge pressure on the health service. It may be exceptional to some degree, but it's an annual event and people before Profit TD, Gino Kenny, wanted to know why we have to face into it every year.
7: Uh, there is kind of a number of factors that are unprecedented. We understand that, but there is a precedent and the precedent that this keeps happening every year. So why does it happen every year? I mean, there's obviously, I mean, there's obvious, obvious um, circumstances why it keeps happening every year. Uh, there's lack of capacity. I think there is a, a fault uh, in relation to management in relation to how do they not make provision for this? Every single year it happens. you know and why does it happen? So that's what people listening today will want to know. why does it continue continuously happen and what uh, are you, what are you is putting in place? why it won't happen
0: on a continuous basis.
2: So this is what the HSE management had to say.
0: It is a perpetual cycle. It is a problem that happens, uh, unfortunately, in this country and others uh, every year. Um, We're not making an excuse. This year is is worse than previous years, but the conditions are, are different in terms of the respiratory illnesses that are circulating. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it is unacceptable, both for staff and for patients, and it has happened.
1: Um, every year certainly since I was in
2: the, in the in the health service interim CEO Stephen Mulvaney, people before profit t d Gino Kenny is on the line a perpetual cycle Stephen Mulvaney told you Gino Kenny and something that we're going to have to live with for years to come, apparently yeah, well, obviously people are kind of uh,
7: living with this situation on a perpetual kind of basis in relation to the winter months. And this has been going on for decades in relation to situations where people find themselves on trolleys for days, in some instance. Uh, it's not kind of a safe environment. It's not conducive uh, to a safe environment for staff, uh, the patients there. So this continues to happen. Um, now, obviously, the situation at the moment in Ireland, is probably, you know, there's obviously a number of um, viruses um that are kind of circulating, that are putting an enormous amount of pressure on the public health service. And we all, we all understand that. and We, we, we get that. Uh, but it's about planning and it's about putting in place, you know, a crisis such as this is going to happen. And obviously others, other kind of experts in the ED kind of field have had kind of forementioned that, you know, there is a potential that, you know, ED department would be overrun in relation to capacity and that's what happened and uh, people will die michael that's that's the reality uh if you don't get proper intervention at that particular time people will die and it has happened um, and it will continue to happen unless the fundamentals are not addressed and the fundamentals really are is the lack of a capacity overall in uh, public our uh, public health system i mean there was more hospital beds in ireland 40 years ago than there is now so that says a lot. Now, obviously, the government have tried to address some of these issues in the last couple of years with more more beds. And that's all welcome, you know, certain beds in acute hospitals and so forth. But this continues to happen, even though we spend an enormous amount of money on our health service. But the outcomes um, for people that have to use the public health system, it's just, it's just not acceptable that people have to wait days upon days for... You know, very, very kind of important intervention. I had a, a personal experience of this with a family member, and I obviously extremely traumatic for the, the family, um, and just not acceptable. Just not acceptable that somebody that's paid tax throughout their life that relies on the public health service is left on the trolley for two days. I'm sorry, that's just not acceptable. But we're a this? No, it's not. Just, just stuff. you know people have to be accountable
2: I know accountable. but we've been hearing since 2006 yeah. it's not acceptable and it's exactly the turn of phrase that's always used uh, but uh, it's one thing saying it's not acceptable if the problem continues you are accepting the problem aren't you?
7: Yeah yeah, and that's a good point Michael it's a good point that you know we continuously to ha- have this situation every year um, so one has to ask you know why is it happening uh, it's bad planning. It's capacity. I mean, there's. I mean, you can imagine the, m- the amount of pressure and stress that you know people are working in the health service at the moment. It must be absolutely horrific. It really, really must be bad. And you know, um, we need, there's obviously staffing issues, retention issues. There's issues with, as I said, capacity. to some people that I mean, obviously shouldn't be even in ED departments. Mm-hmm. You know, they should not be directed towards ED departments. Uh, so it's a whole myriad of kind of reasons why this is happening. Okay, but, yes. you know, yeah, 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 and is it going to be solved uh, overnight? I mean, obviously the HSE have put a, a emergency plan in at the moment in relation to the crisis management, but if you, if you call something a crisis management, kind of uh, a, gr- a grouping called crisis management, that says everything. Mm. It's kind of constantly kind of put, trying to put fires out. Uh, I mean, it's, Ireland's a small country at the end of the day. It's very small country. But, you know, and other countries have got it right. It's not perfect by any means. But there is there are plans and mechanisms you put together where people are just not left in trolleys for two days. That's just not acceptable. I mean, in countries mm-hmm. the more developed uh, countries you would actually, I'm not saying, I'm not trying yeah. to make a, a parallel between a developing world and say Ireland's quite a wealthy country. But, you know, in some cases, actually, if you're kind of a less wealthy country, you'd actually be seen to quicker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's not mm. that's not and that's mm. that's not right. And but that's not the kind of saying thing about, you know, our public health system. The staff that work there work mm. extremely hard. They're very professional, but it's a brilliant. Mm. You know, when you get into the health service, Michael, it's good. Yeah, it's we were just effective.
2: hearing about a, a nurse who came out of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital on Friday night, and her, her car was broken into. Now she's worried about her, her car going forward, but also about her, her personal safety. Uh, can I talk to you, Gino Kenny, about your personal security uh, and indeed your personal safety? Because uh, you say that you're not going to be intimidated by the far right, that the far right has been spreading lies about you, that they've threatened to come to your home, that they've put pictures up of your family home on the internet, which you see is something very serious in terms of your personal security, and that they've threatened to kill you.
7: Yeah, Michael. That's all, that's all correct. And these are from very, very kind of unsavoury, nasty elements, uh, fascist kind of individuals and parties that have threatened to basically come and attack my home. Why? Um, because we challenged them in relation to the misinformation and the lies and the poison that they tried to spread. Um, and we tra- we challenged them peacefully uh, last Thursday when they tried to organise outside so the direct division centre. Uh, some of the stuff, slogans that they were saying, it's I couldn't even repeat, Michael, on this show. It's absolutely poisonous, poisonous. The vast majority of people not drawn in by it. There are individuals that are not in right-wing parties, far-right parties that sometimes are drawn into this. Uh, but there's individuals um, and well, far-right parties uh, in this country that are spreading absolute poison and incitement to hatred. Uh, and they are willing to attack not only public representatives, uh, but other, you know, asylum seekers, people of colour, um, and these people literally don't have anything to offer in relation to, you know, situations around housing and health. They blame immigrants, right? That's what their kind of poisonous kind of agenda is. You know, the reason why we have a housing and health crisis is not because of immigrants. You know, actually, immigrants actually play a huge part in the health service. But the reason why we, have successive governments throughout the last 30, 40 years, have have failed to address these issues, inequalities in housing and inequalities of health. So look, I won't be intimidated um, in any way. I will go about my business. uh, The
2: Gardaí say there's sinister elements uh, attached, uh, that uh, they're communicating with uh, right-wing and neo-Nazis across Europe, uh, and they're coming together. They now sort of have a handbook uh, in place for stirring up hatred, and it's the same sort of terminology that's being used to poison the minds of communities. Men dropped into places in the dead of night. Nobody knows who they are. Uh, They're going to rape your women and children. They've stabbed people down in Killarney. Uh, All the stuff uh, 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 which is coupled with, uh, I've nothing against genuine refugees, meaning these are not genuine refugees. Uh, These are the big mouths and the layabouts. Uh, uh, Are they more than big mouths and layabouts? Or do you take these threats seriously?
7: Well, I have to take them serious, Michael. You know, Um, and a lot of it is bluster and empty rhetoric the vast, vast majority of time. But, you know, you've seen in the past where they have made threats against other, you know, public representatives and, is you know, is it has happened that, you know, people are attacked in their home or physically, you know, and there's a whole myriad of not just kind of far-right kind of individuals and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rhetoric that they use is is is, is poisonous, it's, hate, it's hate-filled, it's exp- completely toxic And, you know, it plays on people's fears. Mm. It basically dehumanises people. And once you start dehumanising any individual, right, Mm. any individual, then there are certain individuals in society that won't see them human. I can tell you now just Mm. just how this plays out. It's we just have the people that kind of are drawn into some of the stuff and Mm. they're not racist by any
2: means. What what we've been learning locally is that you dispel the fear if you bring people face to face and that maybe when people move into an area a meet and greet should be organised so that the mystery out of uh, the people who are there is taken away because they're all good people for the most part like any group of people you get good and bad uh, and so on. Uh, But uh, when it comes to these threats, am I right in thinking, uh, well whatever um, as far as you're concerned, but when it, it goes to putting up pictures of the family home which uh, extends the threat to members of your family or people yeah. who you're living with, that that takes it to a totally different level.
7: Yeah, no, it does take it to a different level and uh, I mean uh, and our, you know the fascist, some of the fascist elements are, you know, they don't care about the truth. Truth is irrelevant, right? And they will incite others. They won't do it themselves, more than likely, but they will incite others to carry out, uh, you know, the rhetoric that mm-hmm. they actually put up. So they put up pictures of people's houses. Uh, and there's some of the stuff I just can't repeat on the show, Michael, and threats that, you know, are made. Um, so uh, you got to be kind of, you, it's, it's slightly unsettling, but, you know, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, that, you know, the rhetoric that they use uh to try to try to intimidate people and try to incite people. Uh whether people carry out these acts, it's hard to know. Uh hopefully they don't. Hmm. But you know, who's to say that some individual won't will actually do some of the stuff that, you know, they tell hmm. uh, others to do. So yeah, you have if, to be if, the if,
2: if they, the they do something it's too late to act then.
7: Exactly, uh, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's not just against me, as
7: I said, I, yeah. I I'm I I'm I'm, I won't be intimidated, but it's, what I would be worried about is that this is, kind of, you, know, you know, people are seeking asylum or, you know, something, mm. something like that. That's, that's the violence that, you know, could be kind of um, targeted against yeah. individuals like that. And, and that's, you know, that's the most pressing thing at the yeah. moment. But I think people shouldn't be drawn in by this and people should just, you know, Ireland's a very, very welcoming country. Very friendly. You know, I mean, our people are very mm-hmm. friendly yeah. and we're kind of we do help, you know, when people need help. And you know, and that's uh, the vast, vast yeah. majority of people we go like that.
2: A lot of us know uh, a lot of the people who are driving this rhetoric uh, for a very long time and they've uh, spent years uh, stirring up hatred uh, in many different ways. Uh, They're very sinister characters. Uh, I'm not sure that any decent thinking person would want to be associated with them. People will make their own choices, of course. uh, But uh, it's very concerning to hear uh, the abuse that you've been subjected to. uh, And hopefully uh, it'll fizzle away. uh, But uh, there is undoubtedly a problem that Will need to be dealt with, and uh, as the doll resumes today, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about that. Gino, I have to leave it there a matter of time. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining Thank us you. on the program today, you. Gino Kenny, People Before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest is a member of the Rocktas Health Committee. Michael,
4: Michael Reed on LMFM. On
2: LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing on LMFM's news, Meath County Council is investigating how 3,000 tyres were dumped on someone's land let's hear a little bit more about this Declan Grimes Senior Executive Engineer with Meath County Council is on the line good morning to you Declan and thank you indeed uh, for joining us I saw a photograph uh, of this which people can see on LMFM's website and social media pages and so forth of uh, the tires it's an awful lot of tires shocking when you see the scale and and what 3,000 tires actually looks like tell us a, a little bit more this was on the R160 trim road
5: uh, good morning, Michael. That, that's correct. Uh, the tyres were dumped um, on the 13th of January on Friday morning uh, or uh, on the evening before that uh, in between Trim and Longwood. In uh, actually a very visible place, um, about 20 metres from the, the regional road. Uh, so our warden inspected the location um, and we, we, we've got a few waste enforcement officers that have been out there to try and gather evidence. But uh, approximately 3,000 tyres have been dumped. Uh, On private land uh, beside a forest. So, and do you think that?
2: Do you think that whoever was dumping them would have been visible from the road? You think that somebody might have seen this happen?
5: I do, Michael. Yeah, it's 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 likely that it occurred. Okay, probably early morning uh, at night. It's a very heavily trafficked road, a region road. It's an awful lot lorries on the road. So uh, they took a big risk, uh, reversing into this area and they could have been bogged down with soft ground so the, the culprits involved did take a risk um, and could have, be, could have been easily caught. but unfortunately uh, at this point um, we, we have no information there in relation to the, to the offender.
2: Okay, but you'd obviously appeal to anybody who might have seen something, may have not thought much of it at the time, uh, may have dashed cam video uh, for that matter to come forward. Should they contact Meath County Council?
5: Absolutely, Michael. Yeah, they can contact me, County Council, by email at environment at IE or they can phone the office on zero four six nine zero nine seven two zero zero, and all all complaints uh, and information can can be made anonymously. Um, so um, again, mm. well, this this is going to cost the landowner in this instance yeah. in excess of uh, potentially of ten thousand euro. Wow, that's
2: unbelievable! Uh, it's, it's, isn't it? it's, an,
5: it's an it's an incredible uh, it's an incredible mm. incident in terms of the cleanup costs. And the, the damage it could cost um, going forward.
2: Obviously, you so, want to know who did it, who might have done it, who absolutely. would have, who would have three thousand tyres. Is it a, a garage, or is that too obvious uh, um, of an assumption? It, it
5: could be, and, and if anyone has noticed uh, any large stockpile of, of tyres being removed from a business premises or an industrial yard or any type of um, any type of land, uh, they can also contact the council anonymously. But it would be, it would be like if someone supplying tyres.
8: That's stamps.com. Code program.
5: Um, or maybe an historic uh, stockpile of tyres where someone has been gathering them for a number of years. Now, there, there is there is a compliance scheme in the country at the minute which is administered by an approved body called CERCOL ELT, and all tyre premises, or even supplying tyres or important car tyres into the country, have to be registered with CERCOL ELT. And they actually will collect the tyres. Uh, free of charge because there's, um, there's an environmental management cost associated with, mm-hmm. with car tyres. So basically the tyres the as they're imported into the country, uh, there's a 2 euros you charge plus fat per car tyre uh, and that's paid obviously by the consumer, whoever purchased the tyre, and then the tyres are collected for free. So these uh, that would suggest that these tyres are historic uh, or someone has been gathering them for years and they don't have proof that they, the EMC has been paid on the tyres.
2: Right. Why would it not have been paid?
5: Well, if there were like the, 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 this, this EMC charge uh, is, isn't, in, uh, isn't in that long. Okay. Uh, so, and you know, it doesn't they, actually apply they, they, to... They predate
2: uh, that, in other words.
5: They predate that, right. and, and also it's only passenger car tyres that fall mm. under the scheme. And uh, larger tyres... Are they,
2: are they not worth anything, Declan? I mean... Uh,
5: Unfortunately not, no. They, oh, can, at the minute. they can be recycled yeah. uh, for use uh, as rubber. Uh, in in playgrounds and in the equestrian industry and things like that but by and large uh, a lot of them are are disposed of
2: right no nobody buys old tires for recycling no. purposes like no, that no
5: uh, you know you will have farmers that that want that want to get tires for their silage pits mm. uh so the, the farmers can register with Cercol elt if, the, if they are looking for tyres for their silage pits, but by and large, uh, no, nobody wants uh, nobody wants waste tyres, and they are considered waste, so they have to be managed as waste. So, in other words, anyone um, that disposes of waste tyres has to get an authorised waste collector to collect the tyres, uh, and, and they are all permit holders. And uh, anyone that is collecting, getting waste tyres collected, to ensure that the person that they are, the company that they are using, does have a waste collection permit, and they get a receipt from that particular company showing the quantity of tyres removed.
2: Okay, Uh, and there's nothing on the tyres to uh, identify the source where they've come from or anything like that, or should there be identifying marks on tyres
5: well, unfortunately, there, there's no identifying marks. Their g- tires are, are generic uh, in appearance. Obviously, there's different size of tires. Mm. Um, like, for example, uh, a, a large like, truck tire can cost up to €25 Euro to get rid of per tire. A bus tire, €13 Euro per tire. So there's huge costs uh, in, cordon, in, in disposing of those type of tires. But there is no mark in some tires. Now, we are carrying out a full investigation, and we are liaising with Circle ELT in terms of identifying the source. Mm of these waste tyres.
2: I'm sure the landowner must just be distraught uh, with confusion, upset whatever uh, emotion because I mean suddenly to be landed with a a €10,000 bill to clean up somebody else's mess is just beyond anybody's comprehension.
5: Absolutely and and unfortunately in this case we're reliant on things like the land registry and stuff like that to identify the owners uh, of, of land so like it's not a case that you know you can you can ring the man like that. We've we wrote out to the owner um, to advise them of the incident, and um, they don't live close to the incident, so at this point they're probably unaware um, that that there's illegal dumping on the card, unfortunately.
2: Okay. Well, we've seen a a lot of jumping over the years. This one's off the scale, I think. And uh, obviously, uh, as you say, you'll appeal to anybody who has any information to help you with your investigation.
5: Absolutely. And just to point out that, like the majority of of car suppliers, sorry, of uh, of tyre suppliers are compliant. Like, we need, We have a ninety percent compliance rate with tyre business in 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 the in the, in the county. Uh, so it, it's just those those particular rogue uh, collectors or people who have a stock, stockpile. They think they're getting a good deal when someone arrives into their yard and offers them maybe fifty cent to collect a tire, uh, and they give them to a good fit and before they know it, they're they're legally dumped in the forest or in a rural area or on a public road. So. Mm. It's pretty
2: disgusting, um, isn't it? Yeah, it I mean, is, yeah. On, on a number of fronts. I mean, to destroy the countryside and the environment like that, and uh, to uh, sh- shaft somebody and leave them with a the bill to clean up your mess. Of here. course. So, yeah. What What What, what might uh, be the consequence for whoever is responsible if uh, they're discovered?
5: Well, like I said a full investigation will be carried out, and if we do catch the offender. Uh, we will be examining uh, bringing those culprits to, to, to the district court or the circuit court, um, to, to, and it'll, like, at the end of the day, it will be up to the courts to impose any fine if, if the case is proven. But in, in circumstances like this, where it's, it's where it's very serious, we will look to bring, um, if you like, a prosecution before the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, that is obviously pending um, identifying the. the the, the origin mm. of the of the waste you know
2: okay well look we'll leave it there for the moment yeah, if, I, if
5: i wouldn't mind yeah. Michael just saying that we would encourage we can council would encourage landowners to secure their their lands uh, with fencing and with lock gates to deter this type of activity and for people to be vigilant in rural areas if this does occur uh, to contact me county council Uh, got any information.
2: Uh, An unfortunate reality uh, I'm afraid uh, dreadful to hear you say that but that's the reality of uh, the situation. It is Michael
5: unfortunately.
2: 3,000 tires dumped on somebody's land. It it is uh, really, really awful. Declan, thank you indeed uh, and best of luck with those uh, investigations and hopefully you'll find the culprit. Declan Grimes, Senior Executive Engineer with Meath County Council.
4: Michael Michael Reid on LMFM
2: The US Secretary of State and uh, the UK Foreign Secretary met yesterday in Washington to discuss a UK-US trade deal or what potential there may be for one. They also spoke about the Northern Ireland Protocol.
0: Our conversation also touched on Northern Ireland. I affirm President Biden's unequivocal support for the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which over the past 25 years has been integral to preserving peace, stability and prosperity for the people of Northern Ireland. The United States believes that there must be a negotiated settlement to the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol that's acceptable to all sides. And we're heartened that in recent days, the United Kingdom and the European Union have made substantive progress toward the negotiated solution. Um, Last month, we appointed uh, Joe Kennedy as our new Special Envoy to Northern Ireland for Economic Affairs. A career public servant, Joe will draw on his extensive experience to support economic growth in Northern Ireland and to deepen our nation's
8: people-to-people ties with all
2: Right, that's the American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. Let's uh, speak to Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, Anthony Blinken outlining how uh, America and uh, indeed its president wants a solution to the Northern Ireland Protocol and that togs have been progressing or at least they're said to be progressing. Uh, do you believe there is much hope?
9: Well, good morning to you, Michael, and hello to your listeners. It, yes, I think is the, is the most simple answer. I think the signs are positive that the British government and the EU um, are on the trajectory towards um, agreeing to uh, um, a, a structure that will allow the protocol to be implemented. I think it is important just that we preface all of these discussions with the reality that the protocol has saved jobs, it has saved businesses, it has saved farmers from going out of business, it has saved people right across the north and the border region. There are people listening to your show today whose family members in Loud or Monaghan or other border communities are still in employment because the protocol is in place. It's protecting businesses and communities from the worst effects of Brexit. And that's um evidenced by the testimonies from a number of sectors across industry, construction, agriculture. Mm. that have been telling us that the protocol isn't only protecting them, but it's actually boosting their performance during what are uncertain and, uh, and um, dangerous, uh, perilous economic times. And at so- a time
2: when the UK is facing into its longest recession in history, uh, it, it must be focusing minds in the British government, especially if there's the prospect that there couldn't be a a deal with the United States, given what Anthony Blinken said there about the President's view on this?
9: I have to say, um, and you know, many of us might be critical of US foreign policy from time to time, but the US administration's position in respect of Brexit and the protocol in particular has been incredibly helpful um, to focus minds um, and particularly during the Boris Johnson era where there were some very dangerous moves and manoeuvres on the part of the British government, the fact that the the people of Ireland, but also the EU negotiating position was enforced and supported by the United States administration was incredibly helpful. And likewise, I think the interventions over recent days have been very, very constructive and we know that there has been some movement or at least we've been told that there has been some movement on the technical negotiations this week between the EU and the British government and they've been rightly broadly welcomed because the reason we want the protocol to be in place is so that we on the island of Ireland north and south are protected from the worst excesses in terms of the impacts that Brexit will have that we know it will have and that it is already having in terms of the British economy.
2: Right. Uh, Well, I think there'll be a lot of hope that they will be successful uh, and not just uh, because of what it'll mean uh, in terms of living day to day uh, across this island and beyond. But we've two very important dates coming up, uh, one of those tomorrow. Uh, uh, which is the latest deadline, if you like, uh, for James Cleverley, uh, the UK Foreign Secretary. Uh, he's obliged to call an election in Northern Ireland uh, tomorrow. Do you think that that can be pushed back a bit?
9: I I imagine it will be. I certainly don't have a sense that uh, an election is going to be called tomorrow. Remember that the people across the six counties voted last May. They voted emphatically. The vast majority of those who voted voted for parties that support the protocol, the implementation of the protocol against any hardening of the border in Ireland and they voted for um, working institutions that will address issues such as the cost of living crisis, such as the crisis in the health services and such as the issues that are pertaining to many of the public services across the the North and of course one party and one party alone um, has um, vetoed essentially the will of the people by refusing to form the uh, executive in terms of the DUP and refusing even to allow the Assembly to to meet and to discuss legislation and to the current issues that are affecting all of our people and that's very disappointing and I think from, in terms of an election I'm not sure what Different outcome anybody is expecting, but certainly it is my view that were there to be another election, once again, the vast majority of people would support parties that support the protocol, that support a negotiated settlement, um, and that want the institutions back up and running.
2: It, it seemed to me, watching uh, the press conference yesterday between Anthony Blinken and uh, James Cleverly, that Joe Biden, the American president, would like to be here to celebrate the 25th anniversary of uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement on the 10th of April. But if there isn't government in Northern Ireland, it won't be a case of celebrating the Good Friday Agreement, will it? It'll be a case of mourning the death of the Good Friday Agreement.
9: Well, I think it would be be very disappointing if on the 25th anniversary of the agreement, the institutions that were created by it weren't established. But having said that, I think for all of us, the 25 years from the good friday agreement is nevertheless a cause for celebration and for commemorative um, um, and positive commemorative reflection because you know prior to 25 years ago and prior to the good friday agreement um, we lived in a very different society we lived in a very divided society we lived in an area you know that was just emerging from um, a three decade long Conflict. Um, and the fact is that the Good Friday Agreement, for all its flaws and for all of the difficulties in terms of implementation, was the, uh, was the route out of all of that. And therefore, I think, you know, the, the, the anniversary is something that should be marked and marked positively. Having said that, and as I've caveated, it would be better, of course, if we had... The assembly, if we had the All-Ireland Institutions and the All-Ireland Ministerial Council in place um, and actually doing and realising the vision that the Good Friday Agreement set out for us all.
2: But it, it was uh, the compromise from the other side, if you like, on British rule because it was the backbone of the Good Friday Agreement, wasn't it? Because it allowed for devolution, it allowed for self-determination and it, it allowed for power sharing.
9: Yeah, so there were three trans, strands to the, the um, to the Good Friday Agreement. One was the so-called East-West links, the relationships between the island of Ireland and and Britain, and that is something that has been lost in the in the furet because you know the notion that we would have the type of direct rule that we've had before isn't um, um, permissible and won't be acceptable in my view there was also the the, the northern institutions, the six county specific um, strand which um, established the assembly, the executive and the associated bodies with that it is ironic I have to say that they are not operational now at the behest of um, uh, political unionism essentially in the third third strand, and an equally as important strand, was the north-south, the All-Ireland integration, the provision within the Good Friday Agreement that allows the people of Ireland North and South consecutively to set out their view on constitutional change. So it created a pathway for those of us who want to see a united Ireland to be able to advance that um, politically and democratically Um, and it also gave the assurance to those people who don't want that, that they could resist that politically and democratically um, and that at the end of the day it will be the will of the people um, that will decide all of those things. So the three strands of the Good Friday Agreement, arguably none of them are fully operational, none of them are are in place. As, they, as was intended by the, by the authors um, and there is much work to be done but at the end of the day we have largely seen the end of the type of um, violent conflict that marked so much of our own nation's history as a result of that and therefore um, we should be looking at the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement not necessarily in historical terms um, we should be marking the anniversary but more importantly we should be setting out how we actually realize the vision that was contained within it and how we can allow everybody to enact those aspects of the Good Friday Agreement that match their own political aspirations.
2: Stay with me for a minute, if you would, Matt Carthy, because we can hear uh, some of what the British Foreign Secretary had to say in Washington yesterday when James Cleverly was asked about the current situation.
1: With regard to the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and the negotiations with the European Commission, I did update Secretary Blinken uh, on that. Those negotiations Uh, as I have said publicly and Maros Sefcovic has also said uh, publicly have been negotiated, have been conducted in in, in good faith with a genuine uh, desire to uh, get resolution to these important issues. Um, And of course we uh, always welcome the uh, you know, visits from senior members of the United States government, including, of course, the President himself. But I want to make it absolutely clear that our desire to get resolution on the issues of the Northern Ireland Protocol are because we want to see the institutions of the Good Friday, uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement uh, uh, up and running. We want to see the old government uh, in Northern Ireland and Stormont back up and running. We want to see a free flow of trade within the UK internal market whilst respecting the desire of the European Union to protect its single market. we do these things because they are the right things to do, not because we are trying to uh, um, hit a particular uh, date or anniversary. We want to get these things resolved as soon as possible.
2: How did you hear that, Matt Carthy? Did you hear it uh, the way I did, which is uh, that the British are up for a a deal, but it probably won't happen before the 10th of April, so Joe Biden can cancel his travel plans Uh, and it's far from certain that Stormont and the institutions will be restored Uh, and what does that mean from there if that's uh, the case?
9: Well I I have to be honest and say I didn't hear that particular clip yesterday Um, but in in my mind negotiations um, have a habit of going on a long period of time and then suddenly almost when people aren't expecting it to reach a conclusion we do know that there has been movement on the technical negotiations between the eu and the british government they have been too slow and we have been too slow in reaching a resolution and the bulk of the blame for that lies, I have to say, with the British government um, by their actions, by their so-called protocol bill, by their reneging of previous agreements. Um, So in many respects, when the EU and the British government have to sit down to negotiate, they have to rebuild relationships because the British government, particularly under Boris Johnson, um, burned um, and breached um, that goodwill that might have been built up in previous negotiations. Um, and to 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 me as well, um, I want to see the resolution of these matters as quickly as possible. And certainly, we in Sinn Féin want to see it happen. And we would encourage the British government and the EU to continue with negotiations at a speedy manner to resolve any outstanding issues. Our party leadership will be meeting with the British government this week, um, and we will be setting out that we need to see the protocol um, in place, any issues arising from the protocol to be addressed at a technical level. We need to see the institutions up and running and the British government will have a clear role in all of that. Because,
2: But if it doesn't, result, point, if it doesn't in result, result in the restoration of the Assembly uh, and the formation of an executive, direct rule will continue indefinitely, won't it?
9: Well, two things. The reason why the DUP have been in strangeness and have refused to to govern and causing the widespread crisis across the the north, particularly in health and social care sector, has been because largely the British government of the past number of years has been providing political cover for them. They need to stop doing that. In terms of the actual institutions themselves, and the outworking of any deal, the British government can and should um, finalise on a settlement and uh, should Mm -hmm. then ensure that political parties, particularly the DUP, actually adhere to all... But if the
2: DUP don't, it's direct rule indefinitely, isn't
9: it? Well, and this is the important point, direct rule will not look like... I suppose, some unionist um, historical interpretation of what direct rule, because as I say, another component of the Good Friday Agreement includes the, what's called the East-West link, the uh, strand whereby the Irish government has... Under international law, through the Good Friday agree- Agreement, uh, um, a right and an obligation to actually have a say in terms of the operation of the of the of the North. So that is what would happen. And joint joint
2: point. authority. How, how long will you give that?
9: Well, I don't know. Is the 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 answer because what we want to see is actually the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement in place. We want to see the Assembly and the Executive. there. That, that is the best mechanism by which we can actually address the crises, uh, particularly around cost of living and healthcare, okay. which are particularly acute in the, in, in the North. Um, and the best way to do that is through the establishment of the executive. But if the DUP think that they can continue to block the formation of an executive and assembly, and that simply um, decisions relating to the North will be made by a Tory government in London, and that nobody in Ireland is going to re- resist that and mm. fight against that um, and ensure that there is um, the implementation of the strand of the Good Friday agreement that we have uh, uh, we, we have an influence over, which is that east-west strand, um, then I think they're being diluted.
2: All right, we leave there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, as always. Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan, Matt Carthy. Michael Michael Reed Reed on LMFM. Now, people owe €100, sometimes they owe €100,000 to drug dealers. This is uh, according to Garda Inspector John Moroni, who was speaking to the Irish Times uh, this week about drug related intimidation, where criminals pressure people to pay off often inflated or fabricated drug debts, and quite often they'll put a payment plan in place uh, intimidating families, pressurising them into paying off uh, these debts. Uh, it's extortion uh, by any other name and can lead to all sorts of problems as we all know too acutely locally. Uh, let's uh, speak uh, to local Labour Party councillor Pio Smith about this and a very good morning to you Pio Smith and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. I have to say I was shocked at the scale of some of the debts that people are running on up with uh, these drug dealers. But I, I take it that in some circumstances that's uh, debt with interest uh, and interest on top of the debt with interest that leads you into hundreds of thousands of euro.
10: Well, it is. Uh, and that's exactly what it is. Uh, I mean, you know, this this isn't just something that has come around in the last couple of years. I, mean, I remember the Family Support Network back in 2009 uh, did a bit of research on this around Dublin and uh, it's kind of our understanding of it and uh, the response to it has evolved since 2009 where you've got the guards uh, they've got a, a, de- a designated inspector that deals with uh, drug related intimidation, family support networks, uh, NGOs have got systems in place to help families who are in this situation but it is a significant problem and it's a significant problem in Drahada and you know depending on who your the dealer is and the gang is you could have A drug debt of 500 euro, uh, spiraling up to about three, four thousand euro. Mm. Uh, I've known situations where people have paid over fifty thousand euros. My God! And uh, do they owe fifty thousand? No, 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 no. how Uh, much
2: was owed originally? Do you know?
10: I think on that debt there was about seven grand owed. Right. And, but you see, people, the 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 gangs will target specific people who they believe will have the money. Mm. And so that could be people who have their own business. It could be people who are uh, in good jobs. And then the other category that they target is pensioners. Mm. So pensioners in terms of their their grandkids uh, running up a debt or some adult children running up a debt. Mm. And I've known uh, pensioners to basically get rid of a lot of their savings that they were hoping to kind of using the retirement for want to a better expression to pay off the debts of uh, the kids or their grandkids. Mm. I've known uh, grandparents whose houses have been attacked because uh, grandkids have been involved in running up a debt. And these people are completely innocent, but it didn't matter because uh, petrol bombs are fired through their windows and uh, Mm. that's the reality of what we're living in.
2: And that's what the inspector was uh, saying uh, in this particular article uh, that it can include assaults, arson attacks Uh, we've seen many of them Uh, criminal damage Uh, people can end up storing drugs for these gangs uh, 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 as a result of the intimidation it's either stored the drugs or else Uh, but we've heard even worse locally haven't we I mean we've heard of gangs threatening to to rape young girls if money wasn't paid over.
10: Yeah, I remember uh, I was going back to the height of the feud where there was uh, it wasn't directly related to drug debt it was somewhat related to drug debt intimidation where a young schoolgirl was actually followed by uh, two gang members and uh, threatened with sexual violence. Uh, not only that, but I remember another individual who who's uh, who's a child owed a, dr- a debt to a family and I'll never forget this one. It was it was a young person who came mm-hmm. to the door and uh, told the mother what he would do to her in terms of a sexual violence and sexual nature. Right. Now, this young person who did this was under 15 years of age. And I always thought that the people who were using that young person were... Uh, child abusers mm. because they turn a a young child into somebody that could say some of the things that, that individual said uh, is unbelievable mm. you know and th- and the other person receiving that then on the door uh uh was traumatised completely by it. Of course, Mm. it's
2: just a a dreadful thing. Mm. Uh, But it it seems that that's the way the law are going to treat the gangs, the adults who lure these young people into a life of criminality, uh, with legislation going to the Cabinet today uh, from Minister for Justice Simon Harris, uh, something that's called Fagan's Law, which will make it an offence in itself to entice young people into a life of crime.
10: Yeah, I think it's long overdue, and I am delighted that uh, this legislation is coming forward because you know it, it is abuse, and and it, it's abuse because the individuals who, are, who who are perpetrating it know exactly what they're doing. Mm. They know that if you get a young well, in the past, if you got a young person, it was very difficult to get a conviction against them for storing drugs and carrying drugs and passing drugs, and 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 uh, also in terms of. Uh, Threatening violence and threatening sexual violence, and that had to be addressed, and it has to be addressed in the pro- appropriate way, mm-hmm. so that the perpetrators are the people who are really going to get nailed for it. Because mm. what we've seen over the last number of years, in particular in Drodan and across the country, is that young people are being recruited into these networks. Uh, of gangs and uh, it's a very specific way it's in, in in the way it's done and they use them to store drugs, they use them to carry out uh, attacks on people's houses, and they use them to sell drugs and it's all got to do with the fact that it's very difficult to get a conviction against somebody that's around 11, 12, 13 mm. years of age but yeah that person then is on a mm. on a really dark road.
2: And a, a conviction is one thing, uh, but, uh, f- I mean, you're not looking at a, a sentence uh, or the same kind of sanction that you would see uh, for someone who wasn't a, a juvenile, uh, and that's just uh, the nature of it. How, how young? You mentioned that 15-year-old going on like that. Uh, have you seen children younger than that involved? I've m- seen 11 ways?
10: and 12-year-olds involved. Really? Yeah, I've seen 11 and 12-year-olds. Carrying... Packs, well, I've been—I, uh, you know, parents have come to me and and, and spoken to me about it, and uh, you know, you, you pick up, you, you hear different stories about people who are either you know, storing stuff or, or or carrying stuff, and uh, the, the problem is that if if you get into this game at mm. such an early age, and you drift into your mid-teens, it's very hard to pull you back.
2: Mm. Uh, well, undoubtedly, uh, you've access to drugs as well, and this is. Uh, 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 pre-puberty your body hasn't developed uh, being the point Uh, and to be putting substances like that into your body uh, really must have uh, adverse effect on on these people on these kids
10: Absolutely, I mean look, you know, take an average 11, 12 year old and uh, 12 year old going into secondary school their brain will not finish development until 25 years of age, but it will go through a rapid change uh, and developmental stage from 11 right up to 19, 20 and then it starts to slow down to 25. So if you're putting uh, weed uh, tablets in particular, street tablets in particular, in, into that brain, uh, you know, it's it's really transforming that brain into, uh, I- into a very negative place. Mm. And it can be very difficult for people to come out of that, number one, but they do, t- thankfully. But the problem is that when you are putting that type of stuff into your brain at such a young age, the changes that take place in your brain, for some people, can be irreversible. Mm.
2: but young people don't know that no of course they don't should they? young people yeah. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. why would they they shouldn't exactly. they yeah. shouldn't even be thinking about no. those things they no. should be out playing football or whatever it is mm. uh, 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 another child uh, now infamous uh, Keen Mulrady-Woods, uh, brutally murdered in, in Drogheda. Uh, I'm sure you were glad to see the guilty plea Gerard Cruz uh, offered to the court last week. He uh, followed Paul Crosby in admitting to facilitating a, a gang that carried out the murder of Keen Mulready woods It's another dangerous character off the streets.
10: Well, it is uh, another dangerous character off the streets and it's, you know, a trying for the community, trying for the guards and uh, but, uh, like, as we've spoken before and other politicians have spoken before about it, you, we just can't take a right off the ball because there's always somebody willing to uh, fill that slot. And, uh, you know, the the thing that worries me is the level of violence that people are willing to inflict on other people mm. and the horror in which that comes with. I mean, and 10 we and saw 18, it again
2: before Christmas. Yeah,
10: exactly, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and yeah. like, years ago, you know, we wouldn't even dream of doing... This. People wouldn't mm. even dream of doing something like that to anybody. But I think when, you know when when people get involved in this game and particularly if they're taking cocaine and they're given a job to do about, uh, when I say a job I say mm-hmm. that with inverted commas, to go out and, and uh, you know assault somebody these assaults can really get out, out of hand because people are high as a kite mm-hmm. and uh, some of the damage that's inflicted on people is horrific but I don't think that's a trend that's going to stop I think it's actually going to get worse And I think what we're seeing now has become the norm.
2: Yeah, I think if uh, there is a solution, uh, there's many strands to it, but maybe one of uh, those strands is uh, it lies in communities and that uh, neighbours come together, talk to each other uh, and stand by each other when there's problems.
10: Well, I think we've got to strengthen the communities. We've got to form uh, community forums you know where respected adults in those communities can come together and be given the support by the politicians by uh the council by the guards and that when young people are committing crimes against the community because that's what it is in my mm. view against mm. the community right we should have you know two real options for them one should be the judicial option where you know, you're going to get nailed, you're going to get a sentence, you're going to get this, that and the other. It's going to be really laid out in detail. Mm. Or else the other option is you can choose to go the route of treatment and you've got judiciary, probation, HSE, education, uh, NGOs to support somebody and you've got a trajectory through education and work for that individual. But the individual is given a clear choice. If you step out of line in this one, you're going over to jail. And there's no get out of jail card. If okay. you, you know, there mm-hmm. has to be a yeah. clear-cut mm-hmm. uh, message given mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. You have a chance, and mm-hmm. everyone's behind you. Mm-hmm. But if you don't and want to take and it a happens chance, every time.
2: Yeah. All right, Pio. Thanks for coming into us. Uh, as always, good to see you. Thanks, uh, as I say, for joining us on the program. That's uh, Labour Party councillor In Drogheda Pio Smith.
4: Michael Reid on LMFM.
2: Hello. Oh, you can't hear me. I wasn't on there. My mic wasn't on. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the cashless society uh, that we are fast becoming. Uh, I suppose ever since COVID, people stopped carrying cash around and it continues to some degree. Carl Dieter is the CEO of OnlineApplication.com. A uh, very good morning to you, Carl, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, and you'd like to see us all becoming cashless uh, more often than not, at least.
0: Well, I, I suppose it's not up to me what I'd, what I'd like. It's what people do. Uh, if you look at the the rise of... Uh, card payments of credit transfers of direct debits of things like e-money you're seeing that just start to become more and more of what occurs in the market between people and and on that basis it shows very good use or very good utility and that's why it's so popular and increasing Mm.
2: Uh, what about bank fees
0: Uh, well bank fees obviously they're a beneficiary every time money changes hands in some way like every time you use a credit card or debit card there's fees being paid, but they don't really affect the end user. So it's not like if you go into a shop and you say, "Look, I'll pay with cash," you get a cheaper price. I, I mean, that's not to say that doesn't happen, but but like that's usually not like uh, what you call like, like official transactions. There, when people say, "Oh, that's the cash price," there can be uh, reasons for that which aren't um, which aren't admirable
4: reasons.
2: Okay, perhaps uh, you don't realise a, a saving by paying in cash, uh, but as you say, you are indirectly making a payment to the bank of about 3%, is it?
0: Yeah, but I mean, if, if, if it's the case that you say, oh, the, the cash doesn't have any of that aspect to it, well, there's security concerns, there's cash handling that the bank still gets paid for. Hmm. The financial system is a beneficiary anytime money moves anywhere. And it doesn't matter how it moves, where it moves, unless you operate fully in cash and you never put your money anywhere, uh, then... The financial system is a beneficiary of that, but that also comes with risks. I mean, you could keep all your money in your attic, and, and then your house burns down, or it, you know, it, someone finds it and takes it. So, like, there really is a good reason for why cashless is is so popular and so strong. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really converted me, I went to, to London, uh, London about two years ago, and I was on the uh, the tube, and I just, you know, I was just figuring out how to buy a ticket. One of my friends says, oh, tap your phone, and I was like, I hadn't really used that before. And it was just so handy. And so, you know, I tapped my Mm. phone for all sorts of things. And so I get an ease of use from that. Mm. And people like stuff like Revolut. Like, if you look at Revolut, it went from being sort of a a 1% of transactions back in uh, 2018. And now it's up, you know, sort of like 13% of non-cash payments Mm. are being done by Revolut. Like, if you owe a friend a few, Bob, years ago, you had to go find them, hunt them down. Now you can, you know, text them, hey, will you Revolut me that money? So... That kind of instant stuff is... is.
2: Is really, really handy. And I have to say I I love it, or at least I loved it up to very recently and when it comes to security uh, I thought that was very interesting from Denmark as well. There were absolutely no bank robberies in Denmark last year uh, because there's so little cash uh, available to rob. Uh, But I also saw then that when you talk about this 3% that goes to the bank uh, and that if you look at what happens to €50 over a number of transactions, uh, the bank ends up with a, a lot of money and it's really made me think, uh, because if it's 150 on, on every transaction, after 30 transactions out of 50 euro, there's only 5 euro left and the bank got 45 euro.
0: Well, that, that's kind of a, a, a reductive way of looking at that, because if the bank do get, say, a fee on something three percent there's also times where they're facilitating things and they're, they're not getting fees so I mean when you go in and pay for something over the counter I sometimes talk about this when I well I used to, to teach classes about finance about how how do you lodge a hundred euro And people say oh you're going with 100 euro I say yeah but you could have a check you could have some foreign currency you could have you know a bag of coins and two tenors like the banking system helps the economy flow so it's it's just think about it like a mm. A pipe or a conduit. It lets things go from one to another. And the faster and more secure that is, the better everyone else is. Uh, you know, everyone gets better off because of it.
2: Mm. Do they so, though? Because if I, if I go into the shop today uh, uh, and I hand the shopkeeper a 50 euro note, he has 50 euro. If I, I pay by card, they've only got
0: 48.50. But they also don't have security risk. They also don't have to lodge that cash. They don't have to have a safe mm. to keep it in overnight. You know, uh, the systems that they're using for accounting, they don't have to, like, if they if they didn't accept cash, which, by the way, I don't agree with. I don't like that thing, we don't accept cash. Mm. But if they didn't, their, their books are automatically balanced each night. It cuts down on accountancy fees. Their, their stocks can be more rapidly resolved. So there's also nice things about it. So, like, if you look at something and you say, I only see a problem, you'd have to say to yourself, if that thing only creates a problem, then why is it so popular? And the reason is because it's so good. Okay.
2: We'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Carl Dieter, CEO of OnlineApplication.com. That's our programme for today. Our time has run out and is once again. Maggie Maguire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.